Hebrews 2, 14-18, hear the word of the Lord. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Let's pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Caleb was born with what's called prune belly syndrome. It's a very rare syndrome, but it has devastating effects on those who have it. In Caleb's case, it destroyed his kidneys. So, by the time he was one, he had no kidney functions. And so they had to put him on dialysis, this one-year-old. And for two years of his life, he was on dialysis uh, for ten hours each day. And that was the only way to keep him alive, but that wasn't really going to save his life. It was a stopgap measure. There was one thing and only one thing that could save his life. And that was to find a match, somebody who had a kidney that would be a match with his nature and take the kidney out of that person and put a new kidney into little Caleb. That was his only hope. That was the only way to do it. So if we would step back and say, how can Caleb's life be saved... The physicians would explain, well, we're going to take an organ out of one person and put it into another. Now, if you think about that, throughout all of history, that would have sounded outlandish. That would have been outrageous. And if you would say something like that around the world today, in many places, they would say, you're making this up. This is unbelievable. This can't be done. It's impossible. But then the physicians would say, no, actually, it's not only possible, but it is the only Solution possible. Last week, we looked at the coming of Christ into the world. And we asked some questions. We asked who, we asked where, and we asked what. And now we're going to be looking at this text, which continues to explain the what, but now it gets deeper and it explains the why. The why. And what we will find in this text and throughout this book of Hebrews that maybe we'll get to study together someday is that this is the only possible solution to the problem. It's the only way our lives can be saved. Now, when we talk about the coming of Christ in the world, sometimes we use the word incarnation. Carne is flesh. And so, incarnation is to take on flesh. So, the incarnation, what is the incarnation? It is, and this is still the what, 
It is God becoming human just like we are. Taking on humanity that is just like our humanity. And the writer here uses earthy language. Look at verse 14. It says, Since therefore the children share in flesh, in carne, flesh and blood. This is earthy language emphasizing that Jesus' humanity is just like ours. It's just as fleshy. It's just as bloody. It's just as bony. It's the same stuff of which we are made. And the argument is simple. The argument is if we humans have flesh and blood, if God is going to become a human, what does He need to have? Flesh and blood. Exactly. All that we have, He must have as well. Now this idea makes people uncomfortable. That God would become just like us. That He would get that close. That He would take on what we have. Our, our fleshiness. Our, our, our humanity. And so, even as early as the first century, there were those who tried to resist this. And they came up with what was uh, then identified as a heresy, a false teaching. And it was called docetism. Now, you don't need to remember that word, but the basic idea is... Jesus wasn't really, really a human. He just looked like one. He just appeared to be one. And what they were trying to do was to save God from getting that close to our messy humanity. They got uncomfortable with the idea of God being one of us. It seemed outrageous. It seemed impossible. It seemed outlandish. It seemed like it was something that could not be. And we may have a little bit of docetism in us as well. And sometimes that docetism comes out in Christmas carols that kind of sanitize Jesus and sanitize the birth and make it just sweet and clean and mild. We might get uncomfortable when we think about Jesus soiling his diapers or maybe crying after getting pushed around on the playground or maybe having trouble staying awake during prayers at synagogue. Or maybe yelling out uh, when he smashes his thumb with his, his father's hammer in the carpentry shop. That may seem like it's too much like us, but that's the point. He's just like us in our humanity. Now, when we go to verse 16, we'll get back to verse 15. By the way, let me finish reading 14. I didn't finish it. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, the same things that we have. Now, let's look down to 15. It says, for sure, I'm sorry, 16. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Now, a little bit of of a translation history here. This verb, helps, for surely it is not angels that he helps, is a, a verb that has a weaker meaning, which is helps, and it has a stronger meaning, which is to take on, to take on, to take to oneself. And up until the 17th century, the English translations used the stronger Translation of, he did not take on angels, but he took on the offspring of Abraham. And the meaning there is that he didn't assume to himself, he didn't partake of the nature of angels, he partook of 
the nature of humans. And it seems to me that the earlier translation is a better one. If you go back to the King James Bible, with which uh, many of us grew up, you will find that that's the translation. And it seems to me that that fits better here because it's emphasizing not this just that he helps, but that he, he takes to himself, he assumes to himself, he, he takes on the children of Abraham, he takes on humanity. And by the way, another argument in favor of, of that translation, if you go down to verse 18, it talks about he is able to help. That's another word. And so it looks like the author is trying to distinguish between what's going on in 16 and what's going on in 18. Does that make sense? So the whole idea here is he takes on exactly what we are. Now, verse 17 spells it out. It says, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. In every respect. So just like us. And this is what made people uncomfortable, and it may make us uncomfortable as well, that God, in terms of His humanity, is just like us. Now, we do have to qualify, and the author uh, to the Hebrews qualifies in chapter 4, verse 15, that there is one particular, there is one aspect in which He is different from us. If you look at verse 15, It says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Yet without sin. So that's the only, only aspect in which Christ differs from us. In every other aspect of humanity, He's just like us. Now, although he did not sin, it says in chapter 2, and then it says once again in chapter 4, he was tempted. He was tempted to sin. Uh, That means he was put to the test. If you remember, after he was baptized, what is the first thing that happened to him? God took him. The Spirit led him out in the wilderness to do what? To be tempted. Now, what does this mean for us? This means, amazingly, that the Son of God, united with our humanity, understands what it's like to be tempted. So, the, the, the bottom line of that, if you look at verse 18, is because He Himself has suffered when tempted, He is able to help those who are being tempted. And if you look at chapter 4, Verse 16, it says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We cannot go to God and say, Well, God, you don't understand. You don't know how difficult my life is. You don't know what it's like to suffer. You don't know what it's like to be tempted. How can you possibly help me being so distant? And and what this is saying is, actually... He does understand. He does know what it's like to suffer. He does know what it's like to be tempted. And He does know what it's like to resist that temptation. And so He can come to the aid of us when we are being tempted. And, and, and he, the author here urges us to go boldly to the throne of grace, to find mercy and to receive help in the time of need. Now that's His humanity. That's the what of the Incarnation. 
But now we're going to comb through these verses again to get at the why of the Incarnation. We've already seen one why, so that He can come to our aid, so that He can understand us, because He's one of us. But the, 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 the purpose here that the author brings out is that He had to become human in order to die. Now think about this. Does God die? Can God die? He's eternal. God cannot die. Do humans die? Yes, we do. And not only do we die, but we are afflicted by the fact that we are going to die. And that's what he says here. This stalks us our whole lives. It is a shadow that is cast over our whole lives, and it bothers us that we are going to die. It says in verse 15, or rather, well, 15 first and 14, deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. What's the slavery here? It's this fear of death. It's living every day of our lives knowing that this could be the last day. Knowing that it could be over. And that, that haunts us, that stalks us, that, that bothers us through our whole lives and it can enslave us. And he says that this is the chief tool that the devil, the enemy, uses. Look at 14 again. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, let's keep reading, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So let's try to follow this argument. He says the devil uses death as the chief instrument to enslave us and to keep us in fear. In order to rescue us from death and from the controlling power of death in our lives, Jesus came to die. But God does not die. Humans die. So this is the why of the Incarnation. God becoming a human so that He can do what God does not do, but humans do. And what is that? To die. So do you see how this argument goes? He was tempted so He can help those who were tempted. He died so He can come to the aid of those who die. Now, it might seem that he's, he's stopping the argument a little short here because he didn't just die, did he? If only he had only died, we might wonder how that is possibly a victory over death. It's an identification with us in our death, but how is it a victory over death? Well, the rest of the story that he doesn't bring out in these verses, but all through Scripture, all through the New Testament is brought out, is that he not only died, but three days later, what did he do? He rose from the dead. And so not only did He enter into the jaws of death, He escaped from those jaws as the first fruits of the resurrection, the first one of many to escape. So this is the argument. Why did God become a man? So that He could die like we die. So that He could rescue us from death by dying and rising from the dead. Now, another more specific and maybe more technical way to explain the need for the incarnation of God in order to die is to focus on His work as a high priest. This letter to the Hebrews, uh, 
like no other place in all of Scripture, explains the priesthood of Jesus, the high priesthood of Jesus. And this is the first verse. Um, in verse 17, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. First time the word priest is mentioned, the first of 35 times in this letter to the Hebrews. So this is all about the priesthood of Jesus. But to understand the priesthood of Jesus, we need to understand that in the Old Testament there were three offices. There was the prophet who represented God to the people. He came to the people and he said, Thus says the Lord. So he was God's representative to the people. There was the king who under God ruled over the people. And then there was the priest. Now the priest had some instruction to do, but the priest's primary job was to represent not so much God to the people, but the people before God. The priest was the one who went before God on behalf of the people to represent them before God. And he was a priest because he offered sacrifices. Offered sacrifices. That's what a priest does. That's what a priest did. And there's a basic principle of representation. And we understand this because we have a representative government, don't we? A basic principle of representation is that you have to be part of the people that you represent. In order to run for commissioner of of Pompano Beach, you have to be a resident of where? Pompano Beach. In order to run as a commissioner of Broward County, you have to be a resident of where? Broward County, you're getting this. Right. In order to run to be senator of Florida, you have to be a resident of Florida. In order to run for presidency of the United States, you need to be a resident of the United States and a natural-born citizen of the United States. That's a principle of representation. So let's think about this. If Jesus is going to represent us before God, what does He need to be? He needs to be one of us. He needs to be like us. He needs to be of our tribe. He needs to be of our clan, of our race. And this is why He had to become man. In order for Him to represent God to us as prophet, He didn't need to be incarnate. In order to rule over us as king, He didn't need to be incarnate. But in order to represent us as our high priest, He needed to be one of us. He needed to be just like us. Now let's read. Once again, 17. Therefore He had to be made like His brothers in every respect so that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Propitiation. This is not a word that we use very often, is it? It may be that we've never used this word in our entire lives. And it's a word that's so uncommon that oftentimes it's translated differently in, in the Bible because it's just a, a, such an unusual, uncommon word. And, uh, for example, in the New International Version, they say, an atonement for our sins, which is a fine translation. Other translations talk about an expiation, which doesn't really help much. That, that's not any, any more common, is it? Well, that solves things, right? Okay. Um, expiation, but there's a difference here. There's a difference here. To uh, expiate is to take away guilt. 
And that's what Christ's death does for us. It takes away guilt. This is a legal term. But propitiation is a more personal term. Propitiation is to secure someone's favor who was against us. It is to to make someone positive toward us who was against us and who had something against us. It is to turn away someone's anger so that that person might be gracious to us, favorable to us. So this is not just a legal concept. It's an interpersonal concept. And it says that Jesus became a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiations on account of the sins of the people. That is not only to wait to take away their guilt, but also to secure God's favor toward us. That's what propitiation is. Now, Jesus accomplished both of these, and He did so by working as a high priest. Now, we said that priests have to have what? What do they have to bring? They have to bring a sacrifice. If not, they are not priests. They have to bring a sacrifice. And Hebrews tells us that Jesus brought a sacrifice. But it was an unusual sacrifice. It was different than all the sacrifices that had ever been offered before throughout all of Old Testament history. And if you read the Old Testament, you will find that there were many sacrifices that were offered. There were sacrifices of animals and and grain, and, and they were repeated all the time. But we find that Jesus' sacrifice was different. If you look at chapter 7 of Hebrews, verse 27, it says, He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, then for the sins of the people. By the way, why didn't he have to have to offer sacrifices for his own sins? Because he didn't have any. But the other priests did. So he didn't have to offer sacrifices for his own sins, and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all, when he offered up himself. Himself. And this is what's unique about Jesus' high priesthood. Because Jesus is not only the one who offers up the sacrifice, he is the sacrifice that is offered up. And not only did he have to be the priest, he had to be the sacrifice because none other would do. So, if we ask ourselves, thinking about propitiation, thinking about this sacrifice, is God for us or against us if we are believers in Jesus Christ? The answer is, He is for us. And if we ask ourselves, how do we know He is for us? We point to Jesus and we say, because He propitiated God. He died. He offered Himself so that God would show His favor to us. Now, we ought not to think of this as an angry God the Father. This is how it was in medieval times. An angry God the Father and Jesus sort of overcoming Him to be gracious to us. No. It is God who sent the Son. It is the Father who sent the Son. So, He is already favorable to us and secures that favor, guarantees that favor by expiating, by propitiating, by taking away our guilt and the wrath that we deserve, therefore. So, let's go back to our original question and see what we have gained. Why did God become human? The author of Hebrews says it was necessary, it was necessary for God to become human in order to represent us. 
But I want you to notice something here. He's assuming something. He's assuming something. The incarnation was necessary only if God wanted to save us in the first place. You see, if we ask the question, why? Why the incarnation? The answer is, that was the only way to save us. That was the only way that God could save us and maintain His justice and express His love. It was the only option available. That's the only way He could do it. But we need to ask the why behind the why. And the why behind the why is glorious. And it is this. Why did He want to do that? We understand that this is the only way He could do it. But why did He want to do that? When Caleb was three, his mother Monica was discovered to be a perfect match. And so, his mother Monica donated one of her kidneys. And it took, because it fit her son's nature, it went with his constitution, and he was able to have function, renal function. And he has other problems with which he was born, but now he's thriving, and he loves to play t-ball, and he's all about superheroes. In other words, he's a normal boy enjoying life. Now, let's ask this question. Why did Monica do that? She was under no moral obligation to do that. She was under no legal obligation to do that. I think the answer is obvious. Why did Monica give one of her own kidneys to save her son's life? She loved him. That's the answer. She loved him. An obvious answer. What any father or mother would do for a son or a daughter. This is the why behind the why. Why did God become one of us? Because it was the only way to save us. The only way to save us was by becoming one of us, living a perfect life, dying on the cross to offer Himself for our sins, rising from the dead to conquer over death, on our behalf. But then if we ask the question, why did He do that? The only answer that we can give is because of His love. Let's pray. Our God, we thank You for the marvel of this message of You becoming, well, Your Son becoming one of us. We thank You that the eternal Son became human, just like us, except without sin, so that He could be a merciful and faithful High Priest representing us before You. That which Job called out for, an arbiter who could reach You and reach us, we thank You that Jesus is just that for us and that He offered Himself the perfect sacrifice. And so, paying for our sins, propitiating You and securing Your eternal favor to us. God, we marvel at this solution. It seems beyond this world, and indeed it is. And then we marvel even more when we ask, why would You do that for us? You were under no obligation to do that, but You did it 
as you explain, because of your love. We pray, O God, that we would bask in your love, bask in your favor, and that we would overflow in that love and that favor towards you and towards each other. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.